Have you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans. This podcast was brought to you by Sun Valley Resort. Follow your path to Sun Valley. The road less traveled is more of an attitude than a place. It opens up a world of freedom and inspiration in lieu of secret trails and unassuming restaurants, although there are plenty of those here too. Whether you choose to take the unbeaten path or let the path choose you, Sun Valley Resort will be here when you're ready. Visit sunvalley.com summer today. This is Salt Lake Speaks with Glenn Warchel. I'm the managing editor of Salt Lake Magazine. Today we're talking to John Delin, who has a PhD in psychology from Utah State University, but he's best known for his podcast, Mormon Stories. It's been the most popular and longest running podcast about Mormonism. For more than a decade, Mormon Stories has explored and challenged Mormon culture. The podcast, which deals with subjects ranging from feminism to LGBT rights to doubts and questions that Mormons have about their faith, resulted in John being excommunicated in 2015. It has been said that excommunication, a formal separation from the faith, is a Mormon's worst nightmare. John, how and why did you begin podcasting on Mormon faith issues? Uh, in 2001, I was a seminary teacher for the Mormon Church in Seattle, Washington, where I worked for Microsoft. And uh, I wanted to be the best seminary teacher that I could, so I started studying Mormon church history in depth. I'd been raised Mormon, but I had never really studied the church's history in depth. And I started learning deeply troubling things about the church's history. Uh, that Joseph Smith had more than 30 wives, that many of them were married to other men, so he was marrying other people's wives, underage girls as young as 14, uh, bank scandals and forgeries and all sorts of really problematic things that I'd never been taught. That was troubling, but what was even more troubling was trying to talk to family and friends about it. All my Mormon family and friends wanted nothing to do with even discussing these issues. And so not only was I dealing with this massive existential crisis, but I also was completely alone. And I started asking around Microsoft with other Mormons and I found several other Microsoft employees who were having the same problem. So I literally left Microsoft at sort of the peak of my career and said I'm going to be a part of the solution to this problem. And so in 2005, I left Microsoft in 2004, in 2005 I started the podcast with this naive hope that if we just openly talked about difficult issues, got them out in the open, we could find solutions and all stay Mormon and be happy and healthy. Well, you know, I think this is, this is kind of funny to those of us who are outside the faith that we all knew about Joseph Smith's wives just about forever when, yeah. we, when we read about Mormonism and its history and other things like that. And then your naivety about uh, talking through it and things. You know, the church also had its reputation with people like Orrin Porter Rockwell and stifling in extreme ways any dissent. And so I, I, I guess we're always sort of surprised to find out that the faithful really hadn't heard about those 
things. I think that's reasonable now in 2017, but in the 1980s, which is when I was raised, it's true that Fon Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, was published around 1946-ish, 45. And so in, in, in theory, the information was out there, but the internet didn't exist. And books like Fon Brody or, or information from the Tanners weren't accessible to a high school kid in Texas. And we were all warned as Mormons that to read these books is tantamount to apostasy and flirting with hellfire and damnation. So even if I knew that a book like No Man Knows My History existed, which I didn't because my parents would have never told me about it and my seminary teacher would have never told me about it and the kids in Texas would not have known about it. Even if I had known about it, I never would have read it because it would have been viewed as worse than pornography, worse than child molestation to sort of read things that were, you know, apostasy-like, you know, or, yeah, so it's just, you're just warned against it, and so you never even go there. Right, and considering it. It's like a cult. I mean, what cults do, it, there's behavior, information, thoughts, um, and emotions, and rigid, high-demand religions limit what you can do, what information you read, what thoughts you're allowed to have, and what and they manipulate through emotion. And I don't mean to call the church a cult, but I'm saying that this is some cult-like dynamics of an institution that make you fearful of learning about your church. And so you just avoid the information, if you're even aware of it, which you're usually not. Yes, and well, one of the things that I've found living in Salt Lake, Salt Lake County, that is, I think Salt Lake City is well over more than half non-Mormon and new many new arrivals to the city is that um, when I listen to uh, your podcast, I realize that there still is so little known about the depth of the faith and the control in families uh, that people that aren't Mormon don't realize how sort of rigid these things and how thick this bubble is to protect from the outside. So when you started your studies and your podcasts, knowing what you knew that um, Fawn Brody's book was actually, would disappear from library shelves, I understand, yeah. because it was sort of a duty to destroy it. That's right. <clears throat> when that, knowing that, you must have known when you started or soon after that, that your number was going to come up with the church. Did yeah. you think about that? I, you know, the very first, you know, I bought the microphone off the internet. I, I recorded my first episode, which was just a monologue. And I sat there with it all staged and ready, ready to push that button. And as far as I knew, not only was I risking my membership when I pressed that button, you know, on the one hand, I was optimistic and naive that in some ways it could transform the church in very positive ways. Mm -hmm. But because I had been at BYU when the September 6th were excommunicated in September of 1993, so the church excommunicated scholars that talked about feminism and homosexuality and Joseph Smith. And, Even the history, yeah. Yep. So I lived through that while I was at BYU. Not only did I know that excommunication might be my fate, but I'd read enough about church history to fear for my physical safety. Um, and I've lived with, you know, those fears or at least those thoughts. For, for more than 12 years. Not to paint myself as some hero, but I, you know, I knew what I was doing. But for me, I, I, I did it as an act of love for the church, 
because I loved the church so much. I'd had great experiences in the church and I didn't want to leave it, but I couldn't stay and, and stay without integrity and without uh, staying true to my conscience. So it was the only thing that I could do to stay was to start speaking up and see if I could bridge that, that gap. So for me, either I would, either the church would positively change and we would transform a world religion, or I would be excommunicated and will have lived according to the dictates of my conscience. And fought the good fight, I guess. Is the yeah, yeah. And it, it ended as I suspected it probably would, but I did not expect that, that it would take the church 10 years to do it. It, it went on way longer with that excommunication than I ever would have thought possible. Well, this is a good point uh, for me to ask this, is that um, many uh, secular people or don't understand what excommunication means, particularly in the Mormon church. What, first of all, what does it mean straight up or legally or whatever? What, what is taken away from an excommunicated member? For a non-member, probably the most succinct way to describe it is that you're going to hell. Now, Mormons don't believe in a hell that is burning with fire and brimstone, uh, for you know, for Mormons, what hell would be would be either cast into a place in heaven called outer darkness, where you're literally just alone and with nothing for the rest of your existence. That's one way to describe the the most the worst and most technical sort of place in hell. But even if you don't, even if that's not what you think of excommunication is, what excommunication means to a Mormon is your baptism no longer counts. Your temple work no longer counts. Your temple marriage to your spouse no longer counts, which means that your eternal marriage and your eternal family with your children no longer exists. So in heaven, at best, you're in this lowest place in heaven, alone, without your spouse, without your children, and you're left there to spend eternity uh, not with the people that you love most. And that's, that's what excommunication means. From a theological, doctrinal sense, from a practical lived experience, what it means is you're shamed and you're shunned, oftentimes by your own parents, oftentimes by your own siblings, sometimes even by your own children. Many times it means you're divorced by your spouse. Many, it means you get in a custody battle with your spouse. And if you're in the right state with the right lawyers, it could mean you lose custody of your children. It can mean you lose your employment. Uh, excommunication can mean a little devastation of your community, your family, your job, and all that you hold dear. Now there are shades of that, um, and it has not been that bad for me, but it certainly has been that for, for many other people, and that's what you face when, when you face the, the possibility of excommunication. Well, another thing about it that I think that uh, some people who are new to Utah um, don't, under, don't understand the impact is that uh, within Utah in particular, Mormon community around their local churches or wards is a very tight-knit thing, more or less an extended family. Mm -hmm. So the impact of something like this, of being cut off, is not quite Amish, but yeah, it's, towards yeah. that on the spectrum of uh, community. Yeah, in, in, in Cache Valley, Logan, North, North Logan, where we were living, we had lived there 11, 12 years. 
our ward was basically the two or three streets surrounding our house. And imagine living in a place where your kids grew up with the kids of the neighborhood, your kids babysat the kids in the neighborhood, you helped lay the sod for this person's house and that person's house, uh, you helped deliver casseroles when so-and-so had cancer, or you all attended church together regularly, you, you played basketball on the same teams together, and you, you, you know, one moment feel like you've got the love and support of a hundred families all immediately surrounding your house to the next minute where it's like a spiritual and a community ghost town where you and your family walk down the street, people are outside their house, they see you coming down the street and they go back inside their house where they won't ask your children to be their babysitters anymore, where they don't come talk to you and you're basically not only um, no longer enjoy the benefit of that community, but you're effectively isolated and shunned by, by people that used to, you used to hold dear and that used to hold you dear. And it's, it's a very violent and shaming sort of uh, consequence. We're, well, and I, and I don't want to Oh, get... and by the way, you know, young men in the high school that used to date my daughters all of a sudden assumed that they would have sex with them because their dad had been excommunicated and people's, you know, parents of my children who um, used to let my kid come over to their house to play and used to let their kids come over to our house to play would no longer let their kids come over to our house to play. And so my kids are wondering, why do these boys assume I'm a slut? And why, why can Johnny no longer come over to my house to play? And it's because you were excommunicated. Well, you, and, and you kind of bridged into another question I had. Where... Where does your excommunication leave your wife and your children? They weren't excommunicated, so That's are right. they supposed to separate from you to continue their life as, as Mormons? Doctrinally, uh, a spouse and children would feel pressure to divorce themselves from the excommunicated person, uh, sometimes because the bishop would recommend it. But just doctrinally, it means that our family won't be together in heaven. And so uh, a believing wife will often divorce their excommunicated husband because she wants to be in the celestial kingdom with her spouse and children, and now that husband won't be able to take them there. Now, in my case, I was supremely fortunate because my wife Margie and I were on the same page. She actually sat through my excommunication, experienced how, how clinical and uh, medieval and barbaric and unchristlike the actual experience was and that led her against my wishes to resign from the church the very next day uh, one of my four children has resigned from the church the other three have not resigned yet and it's we don't we don't believe in making our journey our children's journey mm -hmm. to the extent that we can control that so we want our kids to feel complete freedom but our family's doing well, but it was a terrible, horrific experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Well, well, did you, obviously you're, you're hinting that you actually had some of these shunning events happen to you and your family. No, everything I've mentioned yeah. actually did happen to my family. That's, that's amazing in this time, this day and age. Did that have anything to do with your move to Salt Lake? Yeah, we actually put our house up for sale immediately following the excommunication, but we could not find a house in Cache Valley that we wanted to move to that we could afford. 
And so we took our house off the market after a few months of having it on the market because it was so traumatic for our family. So we endured a couple of years of living in that environment until my wife's father passed away. And that was one of the main reasons we were staying in Cache Valley. And that's what freed us up to move to Salt Lake City. Now, in spite of this, though, in your podcast, um, you don't seem to be bitter. I mean, even this conversation today, you matter-of-factly are telling us the nuts and bolts of excommunication. Do you, you must feel bitterness for what has been done to you. You know, it's almost like a, a post-Mormon is allergic to ever owning anger or bitterness just because it's so often the stereotype that's foisted upon yeah. post-Mormons, that they're just angry and bitter, let's dismiss and discredit them. It's just sour grapes. Um, honestly, I don't feel like I'm bitter anymore. If anything, I, well, number one, I still feel love for, the, for Mormons. I love Mormons. I, why have I done the podcast for 12 years? Because I love Mormons and I love our faith, just like a secular Jew loves Judaism. And um, even if they don't believe in God or think Moses literally existed, they still love Judaism. They still call themselves a Jew. So I still love Mormons. I still love Mormonism. And as far as the church leaders go, I see them all as victims of a system that was put in place a couple, you know, 100 and whatever years ago. So even that stake president that was so clinical and mechanical uh, in his excommunication, I see him as just following the rules of a system that he sincerely believes in. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad at the way the church harms people. I'm sad that the church wasn't mature enough to be able to withstand open dialogue and even criticism and scrutiny. Uh, I miss certain aspects of the church. Um, but I think I've worked through the anger to the point where now I feel some sadness, but I also feel vindicated and happy. Uh, our life is incredibly more healthy than it's ever been. So it's hard to be bitter. If Let's just say I'd been divorced and lost my kids and lost my job and was out on the street. I think I'd be bitter. But I have a great job. I have a great marriage. I have great kids and a lot of great friends. One of the things about Utah is, yeah, there's a lot of believing Mormons, but there's a lot of great, fantastic, progressive post-Mormons. So I have more friends than a, than a man should ever deserve to have. And I feel respected and loved by the people that support what I do. So I guess that is not a, that's not a context to feel bitter. Yeah, is, but is that one of the things that you're trying to do with your podcasts and the overall, the retreats and the overall uh, thrust of the organization is, is to help people because, and you know as well as I do in the church, you sort of uses this as propaganda, but it's that thing that was mentioned in a recent podcast about uh, uh, leaving the church but not leaving it alone. And we often see groups of former Mormons signing a declaration of independence and getting a lawyer to send a letter to take them off the rolls. And and to a lot of us who are non-Mormon, we always think, oh, just walk away. Mm -hmm. You know, just, mm -hmm. well, why? Why can't you do that? Just walk away and find Unitarianism or something that fits your spiritual self better. Yeah. 
all my answers to that question um, are, are going to be very Mormon. So number one, the church taught me that truth matters. So if truth matters, then I need to keep speaking the truth, number one. Number two, the church teaches that family and friends are the most important thing. Well, I have lots of family and friends that are still connected, and I, I don't want them to be misled. I don't want them to be deceived, so I care about my family and friends. And then if I take that even one step further, the church teaches us to alleviate suffering and to promote health and well-being. And as you know, um, Utah leads the nation you know, in youth suicides, especially of LGBT people. It's like two or three times the national average. Uh, female depression in Utah, as I, as I understand it, is very, very high. There's a high, huge divorce rate attached to people losing their faith. And what I have this fortunate blessing that I'm able to get paid to spend my life trying to prevent divorce, try and prevent families from getting split up, to try and prevent depression and anxiety and isolation that people experience as a result of a faith crisis. And I get to do research and counseling to support LGBT youth and adults so that they don't feel like they need or want to take their life. And so that families of LGBT people realize that the most important they, thing they can do is love and support their LGBT family member. And so why would I, it's not, I do this out of a desire to alleviate suffering and promote the healing and growth of Mormons that I love. And why wouldn't someone do that? Um, thank you for that. Uh, this will end the first segment of our podcast. Uh, we will continue talking to John in a second segment. Uh, you can find this podcast and other podcasts at saltlakemagazine.com slash podcast. Thank you.